0: From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. When it comes to COVID-19, there's no shortage of evidence. In fact, hundreds of new scientific papers on this deadly disease are being published every day. This episode, we're joined by Associate Professor Julian Elliott. He's the Executive Director of the Clinical Evidence Task Force to talk about the living guidelines for clinicians, which he and his team are updating weekly, and how on earth they manage to keep on top of the infodemic. Firstly, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Uh, it's an absolute pleasure.
0: If we start and we rewind a year when this all began and when the task force first came to life, did you really think that you'd still be working on the task force and taking interviews about it?
1: Yeah, <laughs> great question. Uh, yes, I think so. Um, I think back to um, Bill Gates, and others said very early on in the pandemic was, you know, this is going to play out over a couple of years. This is not just going to go away in a few months. And I think. Throughout the task force, I think we've always had an assumption that um, it will it will continue for some time, and so even in those lulls between waves, um, we've we've really sought to work as hard and fast as we could, knowing that um, we're not out of the woods yet.
0: And what would you say have been the hardest issues to explore, or the questions for the task force to answer?
1: Yeah, another great question. I think that. Um, some sort of categories to that. So certainly early on, very very early on. So from when we started at the end of March, um, we were obviously trying to move very quickly to develop, um, you know, national evidence-based recommendations for clinicians across the country, in um, in a time of great uncertainty uh, when there was extremely limited um, research evidence. Obviously, very very limited in COVID nineteen, and even even um, even if you look beyond that into See SARS-CoV-1 or MERS, also very limited evidence base, Um, and at that time, of course, quite a high level of anxiety in general. So, you know, trying to create um, trusted national guideline recommendations in that environment was was um, quite a challenge. I think we had a you know just fantastic engagement from the clinicians and the evidence team who were working at that stage, And, and and so we were able to get. I think some very useful recommendations out very quickly. I think the second category would be around drug treatment. And so there's been a number of controversies in drug treatment, you know, over the last year, including uh, remdesivir, as, as the data started to accumulate around remdesivir and the appropriate use of remdesivir. Obviously, the whole story around hydroxychloroquine, um, and then more recently, ivermectin. Aquatic steroids was, um, you know, somewhat more straightforward. Um, They're more recently Tocilizumab, anticoagulation, et cetera. So, you know, they weren't um, challenges that were unfamiliar to us. You know, there, there, but there were some particular points and aspects of that that, you know, we really did have to bring a lot of um, focus and effort to ensuring that we um, always had, you know, very rigorously developed and trustworthy recommendations up to date with the latest evidence. And I think, as your listeners may know. Um, You know, we've really pushed the envelope um, in the task force, going beyond what anyone else has ever achieved previously, which is um, updating our guidelines every week. So using very rigorous systematic reviews and what's called grade guideline development, but also updating every week. And then thirdly, I think that the the, the space we're in at the moment, which is infection prevention and control. Um, So from the start of this year, the Commonwealth government has asked us to look at Infection prevention and control topics, um, and the first cabs off that rank are uh, PPE, so eye protection and face masks and respirators. And I think, as your listeners would know, these are extremely controversial and um, difficult topics. Um, we're now very well progressed in that work. We've brought together a very diverse group of clinicians and infection control practitioners, and a very rigorous evidence process. And now working with panel and our stakeholders to develop, you know, truly um, national guidelines in that space, and we hope hope that we'll be able to um, release those soon.
0: Yeah, and you've really just pointed to one of the main features of why people have been quite impressed with the Evidence Task Force, and that is those living guidelines that you've developed each week. What would you say has been the most challenging about developing guidelines such as those during a pandemic?
1: I think the key thing has been that we've really pushed this model why were we? While we were having to develop recommendations, so it wasn't a kind of design and then deliver model. Um, you know, we we first had a discussion with NHMRC about potential for this kind of endeavour in mid March, and we were underway at the end of March. Um, we were funded. We'd formed the task force, and we were producing recommendations. So we, um, you know, we shifted from. The work that we'd done in other diseases, such as in stroke and diabetes, we have been updating every month or so to a model where we're updating weekly, um, and so in those first few months um, we were having to design the process um, as we delivered, <laughs> and you know there were a number of challenges of just getting the getting those processes and the model right.
0: And you were saying about getting those processes and models correct what have been the big lessons from this project for you or for your colleagues as well
1: yeah a couple of things i think first of all that um that it is feasible um you know we we have a very experienced skilled team but it's it's not a huge team and um it's it's absolutely feasible to do um secondly that um you you cannot compromise on quality you have You know, I think the foundation for everything we've done has been the fact that we have these uh, very rigorous evidence processes underpinning everything. And so while we prioritize frequency and and the currency of our recommendations, we will will not compromise on quality. Yeah, thirdly, that I think there are increasing opportunities actually for this model to be done in in international collaborations. So um, in part, because of what we've achieved here in Australia, there are a number of groups now around the world that are moving into this living guideline model. So, the World Health Organization recently committed um, to shift um, into living guidelines, and are now doing so in in, in COVID um, and malaria, and also maternal and child health. Also, um, guideline development in the UK is also um, moving into this living mode um, for COVID, and we're working very closely with them. And so, as as these endeavours are established around the world, um, there's significant opportunities for us to be working more closely with those groups um, to share the work Um, and that improves efficiency and it improves um, feasibility and sustainability.
0: If we look back to last year when you spoke to the Medical Republic, a lot of the conversation was around preprints and more journals issuing preprints and how that was actually exacerbating the workload of finding meaning and relevant clinical information at the start of the pandemic. You said at the time that you saw the relatively recent advent of preprint culture in medical research compared with other scientific fields as responsible for some of the misunderstandings during the pandemic. I was wondering how your thoughts on this have developed or have they changed?
1: I think we've always seen preprints as an important source of evidence. Um, We always take a um, you know, a critical appraisal approach to any published um, research. So we will, whether it's peer reviewed or not. You know, we very um, intensely interrogate the um, the design and so therefore the quality or the risk of bias of that research. Um, so peer review is important and it does add a level of um, provenance um, or checking of that research. Um, but we, are, we have always been and we continue to be open to using preprint data as long as there's sufficient data contained within the preprint that we can adequately assess the quality of the study and that the results are, um, are reported in sufficient detail. Um, so I think, I think preprints, have um, we've always seen them as a very important um, opportunity really, particularly in a fast moving pandemic as we've seen here. And I think that at this point in the journey, what we would say is that, like many other things in COVID, uh, they're probably here to stay. Um, so they've been well established in other scientific fields. This has been the kind of tipping point in health and medical research, and they're here to stay. And so, you know, we need to have systems that that um, take advantage of the, um, uh, the, the uh, currency um, or the, you know, the uh, reduced time to the availability of those results, but just use them with an awareness of what they are and what they're not.
0: And a lot of people have pointed out over the last year that just because something undergoes peer review doesn't mean that it can't have uh, just as many uh, mistakes as perhaps something that hasn't undergone formal peer review yet, and that sometimes bigger journals have more mistakes because they're printing more articles and so on and so forth. When you look at what you're doing with the task force. Do you see that there's a role for more evidence task forces as we go forward and especially given the conversation that we could be facing more public health emergencies and pandemics in the future? Yeah,
1: I think so. Um, we're very clear that, you know, not, not every topic or every recommendation needs to be living. But I think for topics that are of importance um, to clinicians and other stakeholders, where the um, essentially the, the we don't have certainty in the evidence, so where there's still emerging research that's contributing to our understanding of an area, and where that research is moving relatively quickly, um, then there is an advantage in taking a living approach because it combines rigor with currency, so that clinicians and others essentially have access then to evidence and guideline recommendations that they can trust because they know it's been developed in a rigorous way and it is up to date with the latest research. So the, um, as an example, our task force is a project of the Australian Living Evidence Consortium, which is an overarching group of organisations and researchers working in living evidence across five chronic disease areas. So in stroke, diabetes, kidney disease, arthritis and heart disease. Um, And prior to the COVID Task Force, we already had national living guidelines in stroke and then more recently in diabetes and arthritis. And I think we'll continue to see this model applied in other areas uh, in Australia. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we're already seeing this model um, being taken up and, and implemented around the world.
0: So what do you see as the potential for this task force in building communication in the clinical community.
1: One of the advantages of this model is that it's not static, uh, it's dynamic, and so can respond to uh, the questions and the priorities of clinicians. So through the task force, um, we've tried to promote very widely the opportunity for clinicians to submit their questions through our website, Um, and those questions very directly drive the priorities and the work of the task force all of those questions that are submitted are then taken to our um, leadership groups and those questions are prioritised and then shape the work of the guideline panels and the very specific topics that they then address, which then results in the recommendations that are being published. So, you know, there's, there's this then two-way communication and engagement between our guideline panels and the wider clinical communities um, that they seek to serve. And I think that's in some ways one of the most exciting aspects of of this living guideline model.
0: Yeah, and we know that that's also so important for guideline uptake because so often clinicians will look at static guidelines and the common comment will be, oh, I won't use them because that's not relevant to my patient group or, you know, that doesn't fit into how my day-to-day consults work. Mm. So that's a good point.
1: Yeah, and I think to that point, you know, we also work very hard to engage a very diverse group of clinicians on our panels so that we are um, working as hard as we can to to get that kind of diversity of perspective so that, you know, that includes people working through a whole kind of um, different kinds of, of general practice setting, um, but of course also, you know, urban, rural, remote um, and regional settings, uh, including people working in Aboriginal medical services and, you know, in very, very remote areas.
0: Professor Julian Elliott, thank you so much for your time.
1: Not at all.